Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. No one wants to hear the words, you've got cancer, but for one in eight women, they will hear these words, and what they choose to do next can have implications far into the future if they have breast cancer. One of these decisions relates to the desire to have breast tissue removed without leaving permanent scarring or permanent disfigurement. Plastic surgeons are there to help. Dr. David Cho is in the studio. We're going to be talking about the process of reconstruction after a cancer diagnosis and what this can mean for women as they navigate the difficult terrain of cancer treatment and recovery. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, Casey Carlberg from Tri Fitness is in the studio, here to tell us about the upcoming Nawahine Festival and the 15th anniversary of her all-women's triathlon series that takes place this year in September on, of all days, Sunday the 15th at Kapiolani Park. Women from all over the state and often from the mainland come for this sporting event, the only one of its kind here in the islands. Casey, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, Dr. Kozak. I am so happy to have you here. Now, tell me, for those people who may not be familiar, triathlon, that's one of the events that's going to go on on September 15th. What's in a triathlon? What order do you, there's three sports, thus the tri. What what sort of order do you do these sports in? Well, a triathlon is a swim, bike, and run event. So swimming being first, then you hop on the bike and finish off with a run. So that's the the basis for what you've done here in the islands for like, this is your 15th year you've done this Nawahine Triathlon, and it takes place Queen Surf? Queen Surf is where the swim is, and then we'll venture over to Kapiolani Park to our transition and then head up over Montserrat as we cycle through Diamond Head, Kahala, back to the park, and a nice, flat, fast 5K around Kapiolani Park and the zoo. That would be my nemesis hill. <laughs> one of the many, as you unfortunately know all too well. Okay, so now the triathlon is one event that's going on, but the Nawahini Festival includes more than just that. Now, over the last few years, for those people who wanted to do, maybe they didn't want to swim, but they wanted to bike and run, or maybe they wanted to swim and bike, you've pretty much created events for anybody to do. What sort of different options do they have this year? Well, the Nawahini Sprint Triathlon is been around, as we talked about, for 15 years. And so over the years, I've just come to learn the community of women here. And some of them prefer not to swim or are uncomfortable with the swim. And we have an event called a duathlon, which is a run-bike-run. So in lieu of swimming, they will run the first leg of the triathlon. And then they still go up Nemesis Hill Montserrat. Absolutely, and finish with the 5K run. run. Okay. Now that's one element of the festival. What else is going to happen that day? Well, on that day, we also have what we call as our super sprint triathlon, and that is half the distance of our sprint triathlon. And that grew out of the need for or the desire for me to to get more women involved in the sport. So they may have been intimidated by the sprint triathlon distance, so we created our smaller super sprint triathlon. And then uh, I met a woman who I've known for years who couldn't run anymore, So we decided to create a swim and spin event where they would just swim and ride their bicycle. 
So anything, if you want to do any one of those three. Now, you can also relay. So if you're just a swimmer and you go, I'm so not a biker, I'm not a runner, you can also have a team of people. Yes. Each of the events, are you're allowed to have a team. And so our relay team, you can have a swim, bike, and a runner, or you can just have a swim and biker, and then you as a swimmer might do the run. But at least two people and as many as three on these uh, teams. And we've also reinstated our master's relay team, which is every team member must be 50 years or older. So pretty much if you're a woman, if you're at all athletic, if you like doing any one of those activities, this is an event to go participate in, possibly volunteer if you want to check it out. I remember the very first year I moved to the islands, I was in the medical tent for your first Nawahine triathlon. And I was just volunteering and I was saying, all right, so I would see these women, I got to say, one of them's like, I think I sprained my ankle, but I have to get back on the bike and run. And I'm like, but you sprained your ankle. This isn't going to stop me. This isn't enough to stop me. And I went, wow, these are some hardcore folks. But for anybody, even if you're not that hardcore and you just want to come check it out, there's something for everybody. Yes, we invite everybody to participate because we get a lot of women who oftentimes you know, they bring their family, their spouses, their children, and they end up volunteering or then we have mothers and daughters and grandmothers and teams of mothers and daughters. And it's just, it's all very exciting. So whether you want to participate, volunteer, just spectate, or if you would like to sponsor our event and be a part of the festival, and it would be absolutely welcome because this is an opportunity to celebrate women's health and fitness. And I just am exceedingly committed to this event. And for the last 15 years, it has just been one of the favorite things that we do all year long. Now, part of what you do for the rest of the year is not just promote fitness for this one event, but you have a, you're a personal trainer. So you have a fitness mission. You're helping people all year long to keep up with their athletic endeavors. Now, this occurs in groups, but it also occurs on an individual basis. Is that right? That's right. I am a personal trainer and I help individual clients achieve their goals and which I think is very important because everybody's different. I mean, there's so much information on the web and in magazines about health and fitness and different workouts. But what I provide is a personalized program for you based on your goals, based on your health history, and things that you would like to achieve. So what if you wanted to do something, let's say someone has bad arthritis, or maybe they have a movement disorder like Parkinson's, or maybe they have some other health challenge. Would personal training kind of be the way to go to really get their feet wet and learn about their capacities and get that individualized attention that they may need? Yes, I think that would be very wise because we take in consideration the limitations, but also work around those limitations and find things that they can do and be successful at and really work on the functional core muscles and in their daily activities so that they could become stronger and then go on to do more. Well, and I like to say, you know, I have some some patients who I've said to them, you know, it's not about what you have as a disability. It's focusing on what is your ability. What can you do and how can you use that activity to help your overall health status? Do you have any success stories? Have you had some clients over the years that said, I could never do that? And now look, look at what they're out there doing. Oh, all the time. And it's just so incredibly uh, motivating for myself as well. Someone who doesn't know how to swim we take them in the water and they become more confident or riding a bike and learning how to navigate the the roads of Honolulu so that they that can become an activity that helps them stay fit or just stronger so that a woman in her 70s 
can walk a 5K event with her grandchildren. And not injure herself and not be at risk of falling. So, so personal training is sort of a window into better health. Absolutely. Now, you do have a website if people want more information, uh, www.tryfitnesshawaii.com. That's a way that people can hear about the event. They can also hear about some of the other programs that you offer all year long. The goal, from what I can tell, that you have as a mission that you have achieved many a time is really to help women empower themselves through having a healthy, strong body. If they want to hear more about the festival, tell me again about when it is and, and how they can get more information. The Nawahini Festival, our 15th annual event, is coming up September 15th. That's kind of convenient, 15-15. I know. Isn't that great? Um, they can find out more information. We have our personal website, tryfitnesshawaii.com. There's also information on nawahinifestival.com. They can go there or they can give us a call at 946 346 And anybody who's interested in personal training, if they want to really help their health go even further and find ways to use what they can do to help their overall body performance, they can also contact you. Same number, same website? Same number, same website. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and hope to see you out there September 15th, the 15th annual Nawahini Triathlon. Now it's become a whole festival, lots of different activities, women of all ages, bring your husbands, bring your significant others, bring your children, bring your family. What a great way that you can celebrate fitness and find a way to stay active, stay healthy, and be inspired by some of these women. The age of your oldest triathlete is how old? We have a triathlete at 79 years old. That's just awesome. I just think that's fantastic. Yeah. I hope to be 79 someday, but if I am, I also want to be able to do triathlons. So excellent job. Again, thanks for all your hard work in the community and for bringing such an amazing festival 15 years running to here on Oahu. Thank you. Thanks a lot for being here, Casey. Thank you. All right. Well, Casey Carlberg from Tri Fitness, and she has her event coming up September 15th. It's the 15th annual. You want more information, tryfitnesshawaii.com, or you can give her a holler at, let's see, what was the number again? 946 Okay, we got it. Nine four six zero three four six. Fantastic. All right. Well, Dr. David Cho is in the studio today. We are talking about the difficult decisions that women have to make after they are diagnosed with breast cancer and what are some of the things that may make women look more towards reconstruction versus doing this immediate or delayed, and how might this affect their overall treatment when they're talking about treating their cancer. Dr. Cho is here to answer your question. If you or someone you love has ever had a mastectomy or had to deal with that type of a concern or been diagnosed with breast cancer and think they may want to be interested in reconstruction, you can join us at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Cho, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, Kathy. It's great to be here. Happy to have you here. Now tell me, there's that moment. Okay, so a woman is told you have to have surgery for breast cancer. It's a highly emotional moment. A lot of women feel like their body is so closely part of their identity. It's hard to imagine that after surgery they're going to look different, let alone feel different. When do you get involved? Well, there's uh, different scenarios. Some some uh, patients first show up to uh, my clinic having been referred to me by the breast surgeon or the oncology surgeon. 
there's there's other situations where someone's already gone through a mastectomy. It was years ago, and then at some point they decided they wanted to revisit the idea of reconstruction. So there's two basic approaches, either immediately or afterwards. If you've had cancer, you've had a mastectomy, either you're going to do reconstruction at the time of the surgery, or maybe you're going to do reconstruction later on. Is there any time when it's too late to do reconstruction? Or at any point, if someone decides, hey, I want to do this procedure now, they could? The simple answer is yes. You could, no matter what. That can be done, as long as it's safe to undergo the surgery and from an anesthetic perspective standpoint it's safe? The answer is yes. So tell me about some of the things that a woman would need to consider if she's going to be, if you're referred by your breast surgeon, you're told you're going to have to have a mastectomy and you need to consider if you want to do reconstruction. For someone who's sent to you in that scenario, what are some of the things that you consider when you're dealing with an immediate sort of surgery with treatment for breast cancer and reconstruction? What are some of the issues that you have to Mm -hmm. think about? Well, we could go through a, a typical visit, a typical scenario for a patient that comes to my office. And the thing I would start with, first of all, is trying to find out what are the patient's goals and expectations. So some people have no expectations. They're happy with, in fact, they don't even know what to expect. I have to explain what's possible. Other patients have done extensive research on the internet and have specific requirements. So Expectations are important to talk about because every case is different. Uh, We get into some bad situations if the reality doesn't meet the expectations. So from the get-go, I kind of find out, is someone looking to have um, just a breast mound created or is someone looking to look their very, very best and are they willing to go through as many surgeries as necessary to achieve that goal? So it might take more than one. It may very well take more than one. And we can talk about that. Uh, A key piece of information when someone shows up to my clinic is what have they discussed with the referring breast surgeon? So has the referring surgeon recommended surgery on both breasts, mastectomies on both breasts, or just one breast? So bilateral mastectomies, mastectomies means both breasts need to be removed. Unilateral is either the right or the left. That's important because that can affect some of the decisions and some of the treatment recommendations I make. Sure. I can imagine if they just need to have one-sided surgery and they want to do a consideration of reconstruction, you probably want to make it look similar. That's right. And if you have both surgery, surgery on both breasts at the same time, then you may have different decisions regarding do you want larger breasts, smaller breasts? Do you want to go with the same size? What are your other clinical decisions? Or like you said, what are your expectations? What is it that you anticipate that you would want? So for the most, for for the average person who comes to see you, they're referred by their breast surgeon. Do they need to know exactly what their additional treatment is going to be? I mean, if they're not even quite sure Mm -hmm. if they're going to need chemotherapy or radiation yet, does that factor into the decision? They don't need to know that. But Is it helpful? It is helpful. The big one is radiation. So it's very helpful if I know uh, from the initial consult if they're likely to need radiation. And oftentimes we don't know. But if the referring physician has already told the patient, you know, there's probably a good chance you're going to need radiation, that's very helpful for me because that does affect which procedure I, I would perform. Which one would be more likely in that case? Do the procedure early or wait until the radiation is completed? 
in, in my practice, if I knew someone was going to have radiation 100% or almost 100%, I would tend to tell the patient to wait and get a delayed reconstruction. At that point, we would assess the healing, assess the effects of radiation, and we would probably end up recommending a flap surgery, which is using the patient's own tissue to reconstruct the breast, as opposed to using implant-based reconstructions, such as tissue expanders or silicone implants. So it really makes a difference. If, if, you, if you don't know what sir, your, your treatment is going to be from this point onwards, there may be some considerations that need to take place if you're going to be doing radiation. Is chemotherapy the same? Because in some cases, there's hormonal therapy. Some women have heard of medications like tamoxifen or arimidex. Those are treatments that you do over the course of five, sometimes up to 10 years after your initial diagnosis. And that would give you that time frame, you know, you're going to be on this this hormonal chemotherapy, technically, versus traditional intravenous chemotherapy, where, you know, there might be hair loss and other sorts of considerations. We know radiation might affect if you choose to do immediate versus delayed reconstruction. Would chemotherapy affect that as well? Uh, traditional chemotherapy would, would delay the reconstruction, the timing of the reconstruction. So we would ask the patient to complete the chemotherapy process, and then about 30 days later, that would be the first time we would start the reconstructive process. Now, it does get a little bit confusing, and we can talk about this, but in many examples, a patient would get a first-stage surgery with the placement of a tissue expander, and we'll talk about that. They would then get chemotherapy and maybe then get radiation therapy and then finally get the second operation, which would be removing the tissue expander and then placing a final implant. So when we talk about reconstruction, we're not just talking about putting in an implant. There could be several stages to this. You mentioned tissue expanders as a possible initial stage if there's other breast cancer treatment that's going to take place in the meantime. Correct. Okay. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. Dr. David Cho is in the studio. He is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at Straub Clinic and Hospital. And we are talking about some of the difficult decisions that women need to make if they're diagnosed with breast cancer and want to consider reconstruction. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about tissue expanders and some of the other issues that really come into play when we're talking about this delicate surgery and trying to make sure that women look and feel their best, even after after they've had an episode of breast cancer and have gone into the stat into survivor status. So we will be right back after this quick break, but you can join us at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Stay with us. Have you ever found yourself interested in a local news report and then missed half of it because you got a phone call? Or maybe you had to park the car and turn the radio off. If you want to find out how that report ended, you can go to hawaiipublicradio.org and click on News. There you'll find links to individual reporters' stories, contributors' essays, neighbor island reports, and the talk show audio archives, the HPR website. It's just a click away. On the next Humankind, the role of belief and faith in facing cancer. We can allow hurts and pains and disappointments to knock us down. And every time you get knocked down, get up. There's that spiritual hand helping you. Next time on Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace.
Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Cho. He is a reconstructive and breast surgeon at Straub Clinic and Hospital. We're talking about surgery after a diagnosis of breast cancer. If you or a loved one has faced this difficult decision, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'd like to hear your story, and you may just inspire someone else along the way. Dr. Cho, we were talking about the possibility of a complicated situation where somebody decides that they're going to have initial surgery and something called a tissue expander, then have their treatments and go back and do an implant at the end of that. Mm -hmm. What exactly is a tissue expander? Well, a tissue expander is a device that was developed in, I think, 1982 uh, by Dr. Radovan. The device is something that can be inserted underneath the patient's skin and underneath the pectoralis muscle. And it can be inserted in a very flat shape, almost like a pancake shape. And the patient can then recover. Skin can heal up over this device. And then about a week later, two weeks later, it doesn't matter when, the patient would come to my office, and I can actually insert a needle through the patient's skin and into that device. And that's important because I can then inject saline or water through the needle into the device, and then the device expands. It gets larger and larger. The analogy is like when a woman is pregnant, the pregnancy expands the tummy. Um, So you could call it a tissue expander, you could call it a tissue stretcher. But that's the principle. And we do it because we want to stretch out the skin to a large enough size that it can then accommodate the second um, or it can accommodate the final implant, which would be, be done at the second stage surgery. Now, is the reason that you need to do this because when you do surgery, some of the skin is removed? Because, you know, I would think if, if, you, if you're going to have surgery and you have a mastectomy and you take out the breast tissue, now you have extra skin. Does that normally get removed during the surgery, or is that part of what the tissue expander is to help do, is keep that extra skin in place in the right location so that you will be able to put an implant in? Yeah, good question. Initially, they were developed because during the mastectomy techniques, a large amount of skin was removed. So if you go back a few decades, large amounts of skin were removed, We had to come up with a way to stretch out that skin. Nowadays, the evidence has changed. Philosophies have changed. We're now in the era of tissue-preserving surgeries. We're doing things like nipple-sparing mastectomies, where the nipple is not removed, the areola is not removed, and none of the skin is removed. In certain situations, a patient may not need a tissue expander, and you can actually place an implant underneath that preserved skin. Would you ever do that simultaneous to the time of their surgery? I have done that, and that's it. it's a great technique in select patients that are good candidates for it. So in the right situation, that may actually work. Then you take it from a two- or potentially three-stage procedure to a one-stage. That's correct. Now, so far we've talked a lot about women who are diagnosed with cancer, and, and I want to continue to talk about that. But 
I think it bears mentioning that some women are doing prophylactic mastectomy. They're not yet diagnosed with cancer. Maybe they have a genetic predisposition. We know that the BRCA genes, we've talked about that before in the show. There are some fairly prominent Hollywood actresses who have done this. They found out they have a genetic susceptibility to cancer, an 80% chance of getting breast cancer. And so they say, you know what, I don't want to wait until I have cancer. I want to do something earlier. Would that be the type of person who might be a good candidate for simultaneous surgery because you're not really dealing with skin removal as much and you're not really dealing with cancer? Well, to, to back up, th- those patients um, oftentimes are undergoing bilateral procedures, right, and left mastectomies. They have the option of preserving their skin oftentimes because there's no actual tumor that needs to be removed. Therefore, you don't have to remove skin that's, say, right next to the tumor. So, they may be candidates for that single-stage operation. However, it gets more complicated, and it has to do with the geometry of the way their breast is shaped, how, quote, saggy or droopy is the breast. The medical term is ptosis, how tonic is the breast. It, it depends on the analysis and the measurements that would be taken at the time of their consultation. So there's a lot that really factors into this. Yes. You can go in with expectations, but given the situation that you're dealing with, you may not have all of those expectations met if it makes more sense to do something in a different fashion sure. if you're the person coming in to be seen. So so let's talk about the some of the concerns that people may have about if they do reconstruction. Does reconstruction ever make it more difficult to detect a recurrence of cancer. I would imagine if you've had a mastectomy, the chances of you having recurrence are pretty limited because you've taken out most of the breast tissue, if not all of it. But does having any type of reconstruction make it more difficult to do further detection at all? So that's a good point. Theoretically, doing a reconstruction or placing a foreign implant or foreign device there may delay detection of a recurrence. Uh, One argument is that because patients that develop recurrences oftentimes also have systemic spread of the disease, it's unlikely to alter the final survival rates. So if if it does recur and you don't see it initially, that may not be the only place where it is. So you could still find it somewhere else, but at that point, it's you're now talking a stage four, and then there's a serious serious issue with recovery from right. that anyway. So okay. placement of that device hopefully does not alter the overall survivability of that patient. Okay, and so in that sort of situation. Really, you could do the reconstruction. Don't fear that if it's something that you're thinking of doing because you're afraid that it might mask any sort of diagnosis later. For does Now, not every woman who has a mastectomy has reconstruction. Some women choose not to. Some women choose to. Out of those people that you see who choose reconstruction, what is the most common scenario that you come in contact with? Is it somebody who has had a mastectomy, wants to have reconstruction one side, they want it to look similar? Do you often see women who want to do other breast procedures simultaneously, whether it be reduction or augmentation, because they're doing this anyway? What do you see most often? Most commonly would be someone with a unilateral diagnosis, so let's say the right side, has got a cancer or a suspicious lesion. They've discussed things with their general surgeon. They've chosen to pursue a mastectomy. Uh, They're interested in usually immediate reconstruction. 
because it's a wonderful technique. And that's when I would become introduced to the patient. So in that scenario, for some women who are diagnosed with very early stage breast cancer, they may be given the option of do the mastectomy or do chemotherapy and radiation. And since they're given that option, they may say, I just want to do a one-time procedure because then I don't have to do these other sorts of things. And studies have shown that in certain cancers and certain clinical scenarios, those two things are equivalent. You could choose to either remove the breast tissue or you could choose to do a smaller removal, lumpectomy, and then do radiation or some other type of chemotherapy, and your survival is equivalent. So for those who say, I just want to take it off, that's it. It has cancer enough. I'm going to remove the breast tissue. This would be a scenario where simultaneous reconstruction might make it easier for them, one surgery, but also preserve their their looks in the sense that they, they now have two symmetric breasts as opposed to having one area that doesn't have a breast and one that does. So that would be something that you see, I don't want to say fairly often, but in your practice, that's something you come in come in contact with, is that situation? Well, I'd say one thing that is uh, very common would be a a breast cancer diagnosis on one breast, say the right breast, but due to symmetry issues or anxiety associated with what if I get a breast cancer on the other breast, the patient decides to have both breasts removed. And that's a discussion that they would have with their breast surgeon. Um, It's helpful for me as a plastic surgeon to have both breasts removed because it helps with symmetry when I reconstruct the breast. And then you really do have a lot more options. I mean, you mentioned earlier that there could be some age-related changes, whether it be sagging or other changes. You can pretty much correct all that, make them symmetric, if you start from bilateral mastectomy. Well, we say they're never twins, they're always sisters. But the uh, it's true. The symmetry can be uh, quite acceptable with the bilateral procedures. It's hard to get excellent symmetry with a unilateral procedure. Now, what are some of the other things that women need to consider? The recovery time from doing a procedure for cancer and also doing reconstruction. When you talk about the recovery just from the mastectomy, you're talking about anywhere from six to eight weeks, depending on the situation. Now, is that extended at all if you do reconstruction, or is that about the same regardless? No, I, I think it's fair to say the, the recovery is definitely extended by undergoing immediate breast reconstruction. So and about how much are we talking? Another two, three weeks? Another several months? Well, after a mastectomy, um, it would be uh, acceptable to think that after a few weeks, the mastectomy scar is healed up. There's no open wound. There's no infection. However, if you decided to undergo placement of a tissue expander, you're dealing with a couple of surgical drains. You're dealing with a higher risk of infection because you've placed this foreign material in your body. And you're really dealing with that first month of preventing an infection and preventing a, a complication. So it's actually a little more complicated. It definitely is more complicated. Um, that doesn't mean that it's it's impossible to do. It's very commonly done. Uh, but you'd want to be someone who's got the social support and the desire to go through this. And the reason you'd want that support is, is there anything that someone can't do themselves if they have drains and they need to go ahead and, and empty those? Is it something someone could do on their own? Or is it really something that you'd really want to have somebody there to help you? I think the first two weeks you really need someone to help you at home. Uh, Some people have drains for up to three or four weeks. It's rare. But the first two weeks are the toughest. 
So it's really important to have friends or family that can help out. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm here with plastic and reconstructive surgeon Dr. David Cho from Straub Clinic and Hospital. We are talking about some of the decisions that women make when they're faced with a difficult diagnosis of breast cancer and whether or not reconstruction might be best for them. If you or someone you love has dealt with this decision, we would love to hear from you, hear your experiences, things that might have surprised you or things that you learned along the way. You might just help somebody else as well. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Cho, you mentioned infection is always a concern. And with any type of surgical procedure, there's always a concern of infection. But if you have a mastectomy, there might be less of a risk of infection than if you have a tissue expander. So you have to be even more careful when you're dealing with the expander and possibly even an implant. Well, as a general principle in in medicine, uh, the bacteria, they like to hang around foreign bodies. It's harder for the antibiotics to to destroy those bacteria. So anytime we place a foreign body, we do have to worry about infection. There's an increased risk of infection. In very rare cases, the infection can become so severe that we actually need to take out those materials. Now, if somebody is undergoing traditional chemotherapy at the same time and we know that traditional therapy might result in having immune system go down for a little while, your white blood cell count goes down, your, quote, blood counts go down. Is that a time when it's it's very difficult to have a tissue expander because the chances of infection are greater from the immune system perspective in addition to having a foreign body? Does that make a difference? Well, it, it's helpful to get through the placement of the tissue expander and recovery as soon as possible before we initiate the chemotherapy. So there could be technically a few-week delay, but a few weeks in the grand scheme of treating breast cancer is probably not going to make a significant clinical difference if you've already had your surgery. That's right. Now, what are some of the other concerns? You mentioned earlier that there's a type of surgery that you would do called a flap surgery where you would actually use tissue from the person themselves to create or reconstruct breast tissue. How exactly does that happen? Well, flap surgeries uh, come in different flavors. The the two most common flap surgeries would be the tram flap, which is T-R-A-M, or the latissimus flap. And I'm not going to spell latissimus. But you could if you needed to. So let's talk about the tram flap. Now, is the idea of a flap that you're actually preserving and using the patient's, the person's own body tissue to develop the reconstruction? With both of them. So with the tram flap, the tram flap is, the easy way of thinking of it is think of a tummy tuck, removal of skin, removal of fat in the tummy area, and using that tissue to build a breast. So the logical question is, how does that tissue get there? The tissue actually gets pushed through a tunnel up into the breast area. The other question you have to answer is, how does that tissue stay alive? All tissue needs to be uh, kept nourished with a blood supply, an artery and a vein. If you don't have a blood supply, you'll get tissue death or tissue necrosis. So for this procedure to work, the blood supply has to come with the tissue, and that blood supply lives in the rectus muscle. So we all refer to the six-pack muscles, which are the abdominal muscles, Imagine three, a three-pack of the six-pack, so one side, actually needs to be moved with that abdominal tissue up into the breast. 
And the purpose is that it's carrying the blood supply in that muscle. So it's a temporary thing. It's going to actually be a permanent position for that muscle. So that's one of the disadvantages of that procedure is that muscle is no longer doing its job in the abdominal region. It's simply part of the new plumbing system and providing a blood supply to the breast area. Does anything happen to the abdomen after that? Most of the time, this is done without a problem. So there's a concern by taking that muscle. Do you, are you more prone for hernias? Are you prone to uh, abdominal weakness? And I'd say a simple answer is that if you're only taking one of the muscles, most patients do quite well. If you were doing a bilateral reconstruction where you took both of those muscles to make a right breast and a left breast, those patients are at much more risk for having problems such as weakness. Because you've taken both muscles now. Correct. And so there's not as much to support the abdomen. Right. Now, you mentioned there's a different type of a flap procedure, and that was the latissimus. And how is that different than the one you just described? Okay. So the, the, the one I just described, for the most part, can reconstruct a breast mound pretty darn well because there's enough tissue. In contrast to the latissimus, the latissimus is skin and some fat from the back, basically over your, your scapula. And there's not a lot of skin, there's not a lot of tissue that can be taken. So why do we take it? The reason we usually take it is we've got to recruit fresh, non-radiated skin and bring it into the area of where the breast used to be where there's radiation damage. It's important because we need to bring in fresh skin that's elastic and stretchy so that if we decide to, say, place a tissue expander under that skin, the tissue expander will be actually be able to stretch and get bigger. So in that situation, if a woman has radiation, radiation may often damage the skin of the breast tissue. So therefore, you may need to reconstruct that in order to have the same look that someone might be expecting because you can't really get that with radiation-damaged skin. Right. So like we were talking before, whether or not someone needs radiation is a key piece of information. And we don't always know that before we operate. But if someone certainly is going to need radiation, I would be inclined to recommend a delayed reconstruction, get all the cancer treatments such as chemotherapy and radiation, and then reassess the situation. That patient would probably end up getting either a latissimus flap along with a tissue expander, or they'd be a candidate for the tram flap, the first flap we talked about. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm talking today with Dr. David Cho. He is a breast and reconstructive surgeon at Straub Clinic and Hospital. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about some of the difficult decisions that women have to make. If you or someone you love have been in this situation, please join us and share your experience, maybe help somebody else along the way. You can call us at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. The aqueducts and even the sewers of Rome made it the center of the world a couple thousand years ago. Then it even had its own goddess. I have to say she's one of my favorites, the Venus of the sewer. On this week's Travel with Rick Steves, we follow the waters of Rome. Ferenc Maté describes tackling the power of the sea on a sailboat he built himself 
and we get inspired for a little outdoor fun in France. Come along. Hear Travel with Rick Steves Tuesday at 4 p.m. right after Fresh Air. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, we'll be heading back to the spring and early summer of 1973 when, among other things, Hubert Davis and the seasoned travelers begin a long stint as a house band at Nashville's Bluegrass Inn, the Newgrass Revival tours with Leon Russell, and Clarence White is killed by a drunken driver. I'm Dave Higgs, and it'll be nothing but four-decade-old high some goodies on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Sunday at 11 p.m. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm here today in the studio with Dr. David Cho. He is a breast and plastic reconstructive surgeon at Straub Clinic and Hospital. We're talking today about doing reconstruction after having a cancer surgery, particularly for women who have had to face breast cancer issues. This is a very sensitive topic, and lots of people have very strong feelings on whether or not reconstruction would be best for them. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we were talking about different types of flap procedures. What can you do if you need to use your own body to help restore the breast tissue that has been removed, and how is this possible? We're talking a little bit about different types of flaps. Now, Dr. Cho, in addition to doing those particular types of procedures, if somebody has decided they want to do reconstruction immediately or even delayed reconstruction, when we talk about using tissue expanders or an implant, are we talking about saline implants? Are they using silicone implants again? Does it make a difference, particularly if you're dealing with somebody who's had previous procedures on the breast? Right. Good question. The First of all, m- most of all of these devices that we're talking about are made of at least an outer shell of silicone. Even the saline implants have silicone uh, in the outer shell. The content of the final implant can either be silicone content or it can be saline content. And it's a concern because there is the, the worry that what if the silicone leaks? Is that dangerous? And there's been reports of silicone leakage uh, for the last how many decades? And for that reason... The FDA put a ban on silicone implants from 1992 to 2006. That's a 14-year moratorium. And during that time, the FDA um, studied the potential dangerous effects of silicone. And what they determined was that, in fact, it was safe to put these devices in the body, and the moratorium was lifted in November of 2006. Um, It's important that that women realize silicone uh, is cleared by the FDA, especially for breast reconstruction because a silicone implant is much more natural. It feels more natural. It acts more natural than a saline implant. It's important for breast reconstruction as opposed to cosmetic breast augmentation because in a breast breast reconstruction case, there is no native breast tissue anymore. The only layer you have is essentially skin and some thin muscle. So if you put a saline implant under those thin layers, it may have a more artificial look and artificial feel than if you put a silicone. So when you're doing reconstructive surgery, you're dealing with a different scenario. If you're doing augmentation, you still have breast tissue tissue there. So that may be able to allow a saline implant to feel closer to what normal breast tissue feels like because you still have some on top. Correct. It's not as big of a deal. 
you can get away with a saline implant easier in a cosmetic augmentation case than a reconstructive case. So when we're talking about reconstruction, are you always doing silicone now, or is there still that option to choose saline? There's always that option. I haven't had a patient um, choose saline yet in practice, but if someone was really opposed to silicone, it's no problem. We can always use a saline implant. And when you do the silicone implant, these last for a lifetime, or do we have to take them out at some point? Do you ever have situations where it hardens and then you have to do some other procedure? It's important to talk about um, a misconception people have is that once you get the final implant in, you're done. That is the goal. And I have patients that have gone their entire lives and they're quite elderly now and they've had no problems. But you don't want to have that be the expectation. In general, patients should count on about every 10 years doing some type of procedure to deal with that implant. And that could be due to a rupture where we have to remove the implant. It could be due to the effects of gravity changing the location of that implant. Uh, you can have problems such as rippling, where you can see the ripples of the implant. There's a variety of reasons why someone may want an additional operation. And would that be another operation where you would take the implant out? Or is there any way like a tissue expander that you could go in with a needle or some other type of device to sort of take out silicone that's causing a problem, put in more silicone, or do something else a little less invasive? Is that possible or not really? Not really. In general, if there's a, a significant problem with the implant, then the proper thing to do would be to do a real surgery, remove the implant, and replace it. And rupturing, does that happen often? I've had a couple of people over the years who have had a rupture, and it's usually been traumatic. It's an accident, I fell down the stairs, or or I hit something really hard, or something right, to that effect. Right. But it's pretty rare. There's usually a pretty good story for it. That it has to be. I mean, it it's, it's, it's a fairly traumatic thing, I would think. Yeah, And th these devices have only evolved to become stronger and stronger. So if I showed you a silicone implant from 30 years ago, it would feel extremely thin-walled, almost like it was about to break. Whereas I show you a silicone implant from 10 years ago, and it's got a very, very thick wall. And if I showed you an implant that was recently released, people call it the gummy bear implant, uh, but there's other terms for it. This implant would feel even thicker to you and less likely to break. They call it a gummy bear implant because if you were to cut into a gummy bear, does the contents of the gummy bear leak and spill on the floor? No, right? It stays in the gummy bear. So that's sort of what the idea is with this implant. So we've really done a lot better as far as improving the types of implants over the last several decades. It's actually gotten much better. If you're going to choose a silicone implant now, the traditional thought about leaking is not as much of an issue because the new ones really wouldn't leak so much. It's not really possible. That's right. And that's a credit to the, to the large uh, companies, actually, that have put a lot of effort into making these devices safer for the patients. Now, if you do have silicone implants and you've had breast cancer and you've had a mastectomy, I would imagine you really don't do mammograms any further because you've taken out your breast tissue. Is there some other type of um, if, if somebody is in that situation, ultrasound is still possible if they need to check chest wall to make sure there's nothing there. You can still do some type of procedure to assess that area if necessary using a radiological device, MRI, or ultrasound or something? Yeah, it's, it's probably a better question for the oncologist um, or the breast surgeon, but I've seen a, a number of different modalities used to detect any risk for recurrence.
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. Dr. David Cho is with me. We are talking about breast reconstruction after women have surgery. Now's your chance to ask an expert if you'd like to. We've got uh, phone lines open. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Cho, let's get back to our clinical scenario. So we have somebody, you've been consulted from the breast surgeon. The decision is to go ahead and do a simultaneous reconstruction at the time of their mastectomy. So for that individual, you plan on doing the procedure pretty much simultaneously. Does the, How long would surgery take in that situation? A ballpark, I'd say a couple hours for the general surgeon to complete the mastectomy and then a couple hours for the reconstruction. So you're talking so two about two and two, at least four maybe hours. four hours or so. And the recovery time, if you've done simultaneous reconstruction, would be difficult the first two weeks, but then after that, things may be easier. What's our total recovery time after you've done a simultaneous uh, surgery, mastectomy, and reconstruction? It takes about six weeks before people are back to normal function. So about six weeks, with some limitations throughout that time. Don't lift up anything heavy or do something that might put your implant or your surgery in jeopardy. Now, if they were to go ahead and do the opposite, let's say they have had a mastectomy maybe 10 years ago, and now they decide, I want to do reconstruction. Maybe they had radiation and everything is healed now and they have some skin that you can consider using an implant for. Would that be somebody who would be a candidate for a tissue expander and then do an implant, or would they be somebody who would you would consider doing an implant and, and using skin from somewhere else? How would you address that situation? One of the key questions is, did they have radiation therapy? So Let's in, say in they your, did. Let's they say did. they had that. So I would assess the skin where the radiation was delivered. If, if they're lucky, they won't have a lot of skin changes. So they'll have soft skin. It's still elastic. You can just tell it's going to stretch, and that's what you want if you're going to use a tissue expander. That's usually not the case. Usually if they've received radiation therapy, the skin is going to be hard, woody, inelastic, and it's, it's really not going to work to put a tissue expander in there and expect to be able to expand to a size that they they would like. So in that case, is that where you bring out the potential and of the flaps? That's when we have to have a discussion about the different flaps. And let's say that they are lucky. Maybe they had a mastectomy. They did not need radiation. So now we're projecting maybe four or five years later, and they say, I want to do the reconstruction. I've waited. My cancer has not come back. I'm all set. I didn't have radiation would that be somebody for whom you would be able to do an expander or would you go directly to an implant? How would you handle the non-radiation exposed mm-hmm. individual? So that would be a classic case for placement of a tissue expander. We, we could not put an implant directly in there because at that point in time, they would be essentially flat-chested because the skin would have collapsed. Any extra skin would now have, have locked down. So that's a classic description of um, a patient where you could place a tissue expander. Keep in mind, when you place a tissue expander, they still have to go through weekly injections of fluid. To increase the size of the the expander to get to the point where they can now have an implant take the place of that. And that could be four weeks, could be 12 weeks. It just depends on the individual. 
when you have something like that, do you need to have the same restrictions? Do you have difficulties, things you can't do while you're undergoing the expansion of your tissue expander? Or pretty much you can go back to living your normal life, go to work, do your job, do all those other activities at the same time. I'd say the first three or four weeks, you probably want to take time off work, take it easy. Once you get five, six weeks out or many months out, you can really resume your normal activities. And you're just coming in for weekly visits with a plastic surgeon to get to get the thing filled up more. And then you would proceed with your with your implant procedure after that. Yeah, we want to wait a number of months after the last expansion for all the tissue to mature, become healthy. And at that point in time, you'd be set up for the second surgery. The second surgery is a, is a small surgery. It's an outpatient surgery. And we would remove the tissue expander and place the implant. And the reason it's smaller is because you already have created the space. That's right. The, um, the, all the surgeries tend to be what I would consider fairly small, except for the flap surgeries and except for the immediate breast reconstructions that uh, have the tissue expanders placed. Those tend to be harder for the patients to get through initially. Why do you think that is? Well, a mastectomy to begin with is, is a large surgery to remove all of the tissue. And we are then coming in and placing foreign devices, drains. We're manipulating the tissue a little bit further. So it is a lot of surgery uh, for one person to go through. It's very doable, but it does... It does take a commitment the first couple weeks for sure. And then if you do the final surgery, if you go from the expander to <clears throat> having the implant, then after that you said maybe anticipate every 10 years or so that you may want to do something with that implant, whether it be to remove it or to reassess or something to that effect. Is that true even for the newest implants, the ones you were talking about, that kind of have a less hmm. of a difficulty with with spilling or leaking. You mentioned the gummy bear implant, um, which is a good analogy because I can just picture myself, you know, chewing one and going, oh, nothing's coming <laughs> out. So is that still the case with the newest devices? Remains to be seen. So that's what we hope. Hopefully we can look back in you know, 10 years from now and say that's very true. And we have to um, come up with new statistics and new numbers. So as we get better, things may improve. You don't even have to do that as much. That would be the hope. And that's the hope of, of the surgeons, hope of the, um, the companies that develop these devices, and that would be the best thing for our patients. So when we first started our discussion today, we talked about, is it ever too late to do reconstruction? Would there ever be a scenario where somebody would want to delay doing, or they couldn't, they were told, you waited too long, it's not possible. So overall, if at any point a woman has had a mastectomy and feels as though she would like to do reconstruction, there may be something out there as a possibility for her. I think so. I think it's always worth a consultation with a plastic surgeon. Uh, it doesn't hurt one bit. And especially if someone's got um, problems with their body image or self-esteem, and it relates to this problem, I think by all means they should definitely be referred to a plastic surgeon, at least for a discussion. And once you have that discussion, you can kind of go through some of the options, what's available, and it may not be a one-stop fix. You might have to be considering more than one procedure if you need to do a flat procedure, you need to do something else. But then in general, you'll find something that may work best for that individual. That's right. And things they need to consider would be you know, of course, family support, you mentioned the first couple of weeks of doing any procedure, 
time off from work something to consider. Are there other factors that they'd want to take a look at if they were to make a decision like this? Well, the medical condition is important. So high-risk factors for problems would be diabetes, creates problems with the wound healing. Uh, steroid medications creates problems with the wound healing. Obesity increases complication. Uh, and a big one is smoking or nicotine use. A lot of people don't realize uh, plastic surgeons don't do a lot of operations on someone that's actively using nicotine. And it does not have to do with an effect on the lung. It has to do with the fact that nicotine vasoconstricts or makes all of your blood vessels quite small. And most of our procedures rely on excellent blood flow. So if someone is smoking, I would ask that they stop at least four weeks prior to the procedure. Now, because we're talking about nicotine in particular, so if they said, okay, I'm going to try electronic cigarettes, that's nicotine with vapor, you're still dealing with nicotine. You've still got that, that blood vessel shrinkage, that what they call vasoconstriction effect. You got it. That's unfortunately true. Same with the nicotine patch. Anything with nicotine is still a problem. Well, and it's an interesting point because I think a lot of times people who want to do a procedure but are concerned that they are a smoker often feel like, oh, it's because I'm smoking and I'm you won't do surgery because of some other reason. But the reality is that it really can affect healing. And I know, you know, neurosurgeons, if they're going to do a back surgery, they don't want to do that if someone's smoking because they're concerned about the healing process. So really anything that could affect healing, whether it be diabetes, you know, bacteria love extra sugar. And if you've got extra, mm -hmm. they like that. Um, steroid use, which could be given for various different conditions. Nicotine, is there any other red flag that you'd want to take a look at before you did a procedure other than overall health status, somebody's healthy enough to undergo the procedure? Yeah, those are the big ones, the ones we mentioned. Well, it sounds like there's a lot for women to think about. When they first get diagnosed, there are several stages of things that they need to work through. And from what you've said, one of the best things to do is talk with your surgeon, talk with your oncologist, and talk with a plastic surgeon. Get all your options before you make any final decisions about what you feel is most appropriate. And if you make a decision and change your mind later, there's still something else you can do. That's right. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Cho, for being on the show with us today and for sharing your expertise with us on The Body Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. David Cho is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at Straub Clinic and Hospital. He can be reached through their website or at his office at 522-4370. I want to mention again the Nawahini Festival that's coming up 15th annual, September 15th, and it's going to be at Kapiolani Park. If you want more information about women's fitness and this particular event, you can head to tryfitnesshawaii.com. You can also call 946 0346 and more information will be on our Facebook page as well. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk some more about health topics that are most important to you. We'll see you then, Monday at 5. Thanks for joining us. <music>